It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Former President Trump will be in federal court today to be arraigned on charges over his handling of classified materials. He calls it a scam that the Justice Department is targeting President Biden's biggest political rival. You can't see this as part of a continuation of a department out to get Trump. But that doesn't answer all the questions, right? Both of these things could be true. They might have been after Trump, and he might have made it really easy for them. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. So Cuba has allowed China to set up a spying operation of some kind from the island, and the U.S. has been trying to thwart their efforts for years now, contrary to an initial denial that such an operation existed. I hope this is a wake-up call that Cuba is, you know, once again, a significant national security threat to the United States as a base of operations for our adversaries. We speak with Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio. And I'm Steve Hilton. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. We've never seen this before. A former president will be arraigned in federal court today in Miami, where Donald Trump faces charges in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the classified documents found at the Trump Florida resort last year, some seized by the FBI. Biden is trying to jail his leading political opponent, an opponent that's beating him by a lot in the polls. That was at a Trump rally in Georgia over the weekend. He is the Republican front runner in the 2024 race and will hold a fundraiser tonight, hours after the arraignment. And Congresswoman Nancy Mace tells Fox. Every time the Oversight Committee has evidence of corruption, bribery, money laundering on the Biden family, they indict Donald Trump. Democrats say this is criminal, not political. No one is above the law including Donald Trump. That's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. We encourage Mr. Trump's supporters and his critics to let this case proceed peacefully through the court. The former president is facing 37 criminal charges. This was the case that Trump needed to be worried about, and specifically an obstruction charge. Jonathan Turley is a George Washington University law professor and a Fox News contributor false statements, obstruction, conspiracy. Those are called the darlings of federal prosecutors because they're brought so often. They tend to win on these charges. And this is a rather daunting array of charges. Now, 31 of those 37 charges are coming out of the Espionage Act. But the indictment was crafted to avoid some of the main issues raised by the Trump team. For example, he's being charged under part of the Espionage Act, which makes it largely immaterial whether the documents were considered classified or not. These are charges that he held national defense information and mishandled 
uh, that material. And there are obviously devastating aspects to this indictment. Now, putting aside that we haven't heard the defense position on these things, what the indictment suggests is that they have an audio tape where the president is literally holding a document that he says is classified and contains what is reported to be an attack plan on Iran. And they quote him as saying, this is classified because I never declassified it. And so it's still secret. Well, you couldn't have a more damaging statement if that is indeed on the audio tape. All right. One of the things, though, with the Espionage Act, it dates back to more than 100 years ago. And what it seems to be intended to punish someone for is having the willful retention of national defense information with the intent to harm the United States. Is there any allegation here that he was going to do anything to betray the country? No, there's not. Although courts have interpreted that harm to include mishandling of information. And so the defense, the prosecution is likely to argue that this still meets that definition. The, the Trump team is focusing on challenging the Espionage Act by saying that this was originally a matter brought under the Presidential Records Act, and that the PRA is what governs these disputes between former presidents and the archives. But more importantly, even if the PRA attack works, still other counts on the table. You know, there are false statements and obstruction that wouldn't necessarily go away, even if they won that point. What I'm trying to get at here is that the reason this is such an existential threat is that the Trump team has to run the table. They have to take down every count because they have a 76-year-old client. And even one of these counts can bring between a 10 and a 20-year maximum sentence. That's a terminal sentence for someone of this age. Last week, before he left the Trump legal team, Jim Trusty told Fox, The former president gets to decide what he keeps. He should work really closely with archives. They can ask him nicely. If they get mad, they think he's holding on to too many things. They have a remedy called civil suits. There is no criminal penalty for violating the Presidential Records Act. So Trusty maintains you can't obstruct what's not a crime. Adding the former president could have had a party, throwing classified documents in a bonfire. The problem is I just don't think courts will accept that argument because the national defense information documents are not Trump's documents. They're not presidential records subject to his discretion. Those are national defense information documents. They were generated for the purpose of the national defense. I think courts are likely to reject that sweeping of an argument. It doesn't mean that Jim doesn't have a point here. There is a very weird way this investigation began. Many of us were critical of how fast it ramped up into a criminal matter. There is talk about Evan Corcoran, who had represented former President Trump in this, and apparently he has said to the grand jury or whoever he was interviewed by that he was pressured to thwart investigators from getting some of the classified material and that the former president suggested to him that it might be better to lie to investigators and withhold the documents. How damaging is Evan Corcoran potentially to former President Trump? Enormously damaging. It's much like the audio tape. There's certain types of evidence that jurors tend to take to the bank. They believe what they can see. They believe what they can hear. 
attorneys. You know, it's rare for an attorney to testify against his own client. That's going to add to his credibility. Yeah, but what about attorney-client privilege? Why does, I mean, the former president said on Newsmax in March that they're bringing in the attorneys who are witnesses. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Well, I have some questions about this as well. This is going to be one of the threshold challenges that they make. The government argued that this fell into the crime fraud exception, that if they can show evidence that the lawyer himself was involved in a crime or a fraud, then courts can compel them to testify. And Corcoran is going to say, I came away with the impression that Trump wanted me to obstruct. And there were other witnesses who said that Trump seemed to be suggesting to them that they might want to just destroy some documents, referring to Clinton and her lawyer and how her lawyer destroyed all these emails. And they actually quote Trump as complimenting the Clinton lawyers and saying those were good lawyers because they destroyed evidence to protect their client. When people are talking about this case, There's a lot of political defense that's going on about the former president. He's being targeted. The Department of Justice is being weaponized. Uh, They didn't go after Hillary Clinton. She wasn't charged with the email scandal. There's distinctions here that can be made. But one thing I think is true is I think that the Department of Justice did treat Clinton differently. The default position was different, that when it came to Hillary Clinton, uh, the FBI was incredibly accommodating. You know, her staff told them to pound sand. They refused to hand over computers that had classified material on it. And the DOJ sort of shrugged and spent weeks trying to convince them, gave them immunity agreements, allowed for the destruction of the computers. I've never seen anything like it as a criminal defense attorney. That's obviously not how they treated it. Donald Trump. So I think that you can see this as part of a continuation of a department out to get Trump. But that doesn't answer all the questions, right? Both of these things could be true. They might have been after Trump, and he might have made it really easy for them. Yeah. So a lot of people say, why didn't you just give them back? Give the boxes back. We wouldn't be here. Well, that's the interesting thing about this indictment is I think it did reveal what they're going to argue is the motive. You know, some people had ludicrous arguments that Trump was taking these documents to sell them to foreign agents. I mean, it just shows you how crazy folks have become. But the government is suggesting a different motive. They're suggesting these are trophies. To some Trump supporters, the former president's best defense is in another ex-president's sock drawer. That's where Bill Clinton put the cassettes of his recorded conversations with a historian while he was in office. Judicial Watch sued, claiming those tapes contained classified information and needed to be turned over as presidential records. But they lost. The tapes were allowed to remain Clinton personal records. The Clinton matter involved something that Clinton argued was effectively a diary, that these recordings were really his own product. And it went to this judge in D.C. in 2012, and she said, look, even if these are presidential records, I can't order them to be turned over because effectively the PRA is toothless. So you have to rely on the president's discretion, but I don't have the power to order it. Now, a lot of people have pointed to that and said, well, that's very different from what happened here. They started out with the same issue, and then suddenly you've got a criminal raid. But there are distinctions with the Clinton case. Clinton was arguing 
a point that other presidents have made that these were sort of like presidential diaries, which really are his property. I know this is hypothetical. What if he is convicted? You earlier had mentioned that he could face time in prison. This is a man running for president again. What do you do? How do you handle that? Uh, I think that Smith's greatest concern is the calendar. It's not Trump. It's time that concerns Smith. The reason is that if the defense plays this correctly, they could delay a trial to the point that a judge would be uncomfortable having it too close to the election. That would push it past 2024. If that's the case, Smith may never see the inside of a courtroom with a jury because you already have one presidential contender promising to pardon Trump. It's expected that others will make that promise. But also Trump can pardon himself. Right. If he's he elected, himself. he doesn't go to prison, right? He doesn't even go on trial, correct? Right. So that's why Smith was rather open about his biggest concern is he wants a speedy trial. He wants it as soon as possible because but he's going to run out of time. How do you do that, though? I mean, the former president's facing a trial, presumably in March of next year, on another indictment in New York City on something completely different. There's going to be some early fights about this. For example, Trump is planning to do some type of rally after his arraignment. That's going to force the issue with Judge Cannon. There's often the imposition of a gag order on criminal defendants to ask them not to speak about their case. But this case is going to be one of the issues in the presidential campaign. Trump is going to run on it. And so I have a real problem with telling a presidential candidate you can't run and discuss this case, which you're saying is the weaponization of the justice system. If you had to put a date, when do you think there could be a trial? I would still bet on after the election, but it depends on how well the Trump team plays their cards. I think they could push this past the election. And then it's anyone's bet as to what's going to happen. Jonathan Turley. Fox News contributor, professor at George Washington University Law, constitutional expert. Great to talk to you as always. Thank you. My great pleasure. Thank you. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Steve Hilton with your Fox News commentary coming up. Last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Cuba had allowed China to set up a spying operation on the island that, according to intelligence officials, would, quote, allow Chinese intelligence services to scoop up electronic communications throughout the southeastern U.S., where many military bases are located, and monitor U.S. ship traffic. After that report, officials at the White House and Pentagon called it inaccurate. But then Monday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said when President Biden took office, they were briefed on what he called a number of efforts by Beijing to expand basing and logistics overseas and we're considering a number of sites including in Cuba. In fact, based on the information we have, the PRC conducted an upgrade of its intelligence collection facilities in Cuba in 2019. Blinken said the prior administration didn't make progress on this issue and that President Biden did. We've engaged governments that are considering uh, hosting PRC bases at high levels. We've exchanged information with them. Our experts assess that our diplomatic efforts have slowed down uh, this effort by the, uh, the PRC. Wisconsin Congressman Mike Gallagher is one of many Republicans, though, questioning the official reaction to this, telling Fox's America's Newsroom. Why is the White House downplaying incidents like this? Why 
did they deny it and then backtrack and then blame the Trump administration? Because it's not just this. The exact same thing played out with the Chinese spy balloon incident. He says without explanation, he's concluded that the public's being misled by a narrative that tries to whitewash Chinese aggression, especially as Beijing establishes ties and a presence in Central and Latin America. Monday, White House National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby was defensive when asked about the initial denial of the report. But we were as forthcoming as we should have been, given the nature of this information. Sadly, uh, not everybody seems to take it as seriously as we do, because clearly there's a source or sources out there that think it's somehow beneficial to put this kind of information into the public stream. Uh, and it's absolutely not. Some Republicans, though, disagree with that. Well, I think first we have to understand that it's not new in the sense that both the Chinese and the Russians have had an intelligence presence in Cuba for a while. Marco Rubio is a Republican senator from Florida and the ranking member on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Expanding on it is not surprising. I don't want to get into too much level of detail. Obviously, that was... I mean, you know, something that was given to the press. But I'm glad it's in the public reporting because Cuba is a real national security threat for America. I mean, it's not just some third world economy run by a bunch of 90 year old communists. It is a nation that is allies to all of our enemies and not a friend of this country or our way of life or our system. They have weaponized migration against us and they are allies with Iran. They're allies with North Korea, they're allies with the Russians, and they're allies with the Chinese. And, and they're in desperate need of money. And if the Chinese come in and say, we want to do whatever in Cuba, the Cubans will probably let them do it. And that would, I think that would include military basing right off of our coast. So I hope this is a wake-up call that Cuba is, you know, once again, a significant national security threat to the United States as a base of operations for our adversaries. Do we respond in any way, or does that really remain to be seen? Well, I think it begins with the Cuban regime itself. I think it's incumbent on this administration to send a very firm message that these will be the consequences if you do this. And uh, there are a range of options available to them if they want to explore them. I wouldn't talk about those publicly right now. But nonetheless, I mean, there are things you can do to impose a price. At the end of the day, the Cuban regime is sitting there saying, we're going to do as much as we think we can get away with without hurting ourselves. But we have real significant leverage over Cuba. That hasn't been the attitude of this administration up to now. Right. I mean, they, they, what they have really tried to do is appease them so as to get their cooperation on things like migration. The, the Biden administration is not interested in any political change inside of Cuba. They want stability. The last thing they want to deal with is a change of government and a change of approach over there and a migratory crisis from Cuba. But that's what's allowed them to think that they can allow these sort of activities to happen. They don't think we'll do anything about it. So let's talk about your book now, Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity, mostly because it's highly relevant to a lot of discussion right now, especially regarding China. Um, you write, roughly 25 years ago, we naively thought we would shift our economy and our trade policy, and that in doing so, we'd export our way of life, and a country like China would become more open and more like us. And you say not only did that not happen, it backfired, and we only exported our jobs. And you say the U.S. helping China China enter the World Trade Organization in 2001 was the real catalyst for all this. Tell us about that moment in history and how that means jobs like the one your mother had making chairs no longer exist. Well, the aluminum chairs. Yeah. I mean, she worked at a factory in Hialeah, Florida. There are no factories really left there at this point because like other jobs uh, are long gone. But let me go back and just say real quick about that period of time. And so I am starting basically college at the end of the Cold War. So I'm a, a raised in the Cold War and then sort of started college. And you know, so born and basically politically raised in an era in which we were told the following, and that is history is over. Everyone's going to be a democracy now. Everyone's going to have free enterprise. 
And nationhood is not going to matter that much anymore. Country's not going to matter that much anymore because we're all going to be consumers and investors in this global economy. And in fact, countries may never go to war again because they're going to have business deals together. And that is a theory that was not built on 5,500 years of what we know about human nature and human history. And it's a memo that China didn't get and Russia didn't get and Iran didn't get. Nationhood does matter. But that was a bipartisan consensus. And so we made economic decisions. And the economic decisions were things like, it's okay if your job is gone and that factory leaves our country. It's going to be made in a cheaper place and a better paying job will come back and replace the one that was lost. Well, that didn't happen. And so suddenly you didn't just lose jobs. It wasn't just economics. You destroyed communities. You destroyed family. You undermined the very fiber of a country, which is community and family, because you can't have those two things if you don't have stable long-term employment for people. At the same time, you had this other decadent movement, which is all of these things we know to be true, like there is such a thing as biological sex. Uh, yeah, we've made progress in racial equality and continue to make progress. All of these things were being challenged initially in academia, but then it spread as people graduated and went into the corporate boardroom and took over media companies and continued to grow in Hollywood. And so you had this, what now is a cultural hysteria disguised and framed as social justice and equity, but in reality, it is asking us to adopt fantasy as truth, the fantasy that gender isn't real, the fantasy that you know, uh, family doesn't matter as much anymore. The fantasy that, you know, the country is uh, an inherently racist one that is as worse than it was in the 1960s, if you listen to some people talk. And so these two things are now intersecting and pose a real crisis at the worst possible time because China's under no such illusions. They pose the single greatest near-peer adversary this nation's ever faced, far more capable than the Soviet Union ever was. And the 21st century is going to be the Chinese century at our expense. If we don't reverse course pretty quickly here, we've wasted a lot of time already. Yeah, Senator, 20 to 25 years is not much time in the span of history, right? This is when all of this happened, this shift in, in our economy right. that, you're, that you're writing about. And that's not too much time. It, it does make you wonder if, if it can be sort of reversed or shifted or changed. What do you say to people like Elon Musk and J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, and so many others who are in China, they, you know, the American system has, has, you know, free market system. They're not interested in, in leaving China and necessarily making things back here the way we've been talking about for the past few years. Well, their job is to make money. And I'm a capitalist. I understand. That's fine. That's their job. But that's not my job. My job in public policy is to act in the best interest of America. And so what we need to do is make sure that our laws and our policies are laws and policies that support capitalism and support their ability to make money but as long as it is in the interest of the United States of America. We've got to put the interest of our country above all that. They're going to put the interest of their company, their bottom line, and so forth. I mean, there are patriotic people in the CEO world and, and in the corporate world, and they may make a different decision. But at the end of the day, just because somebody who's been very successful economically thinks we need to do things a certain way doesn't mean that's the way we should do it as a nation. It may be in the best interest of their company, but when the best interest of their company and the best interest of our country are in conflict, as a policymaker, those of us in policymaking, we need to be on the side of the best interest of our country. If we don't put America's interests first, nobody else is going to put our interests first. The Chinese aren't. No other country, every other country in the world sort of operates under that, except for us over the last 25 years, living this fantasy that if it was good for the world and good for a corporation with a mailing address in America, it was automatically good for America. Mm -hmm. That's just not true anymore, and it's being proven every single day. You say in your book, in the headline, 
that the elites did this to us. Um, we became so hyper-focused on being consumers. Uh, you know, we, we lost, as you said, our community, our family, our structure. I wonder, you know, we do live in a democratic republic. We elected these people. Is it we, the people, the voters, who got complacent? Is this our a, fault for electing Yeah, you know, look, that, that's an interesting point. And I think that's true. I think there's a part of it that's there. I think part of it, to be fair, is that everyday people are out there raising their kids and, and running their small business and moving yeah. up through life. And, you know, they don't get paid to sit around all day and ponder the great issues of the day because they've got, they've got to be somewhere tomorrow at 8.30 in the morning or they don't get paid. So I do think that's part of it. I think part of it is that it was a bipartisan consensus. I mean, across the political spectrum, everybody was talking this way for the last 20 years. But we, I think we have more knowledge than we've ever had in terms of information. You know, young Americans today and people populating are the highest ranks of every industry in America are the most educated group of Americans that have ever existed. Multiple degrees, advanced degrees, you name it. But knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is something different. And wisdom is when you infuse knowledge with common sense. So we have a lot of people at elite levels that have a lot of knowledge and a lot of education, but have divorced it from common sense. And so when you get to the point, when you ask these people, well, let me ask you a question. I, I believe in the market, but if the market outcome is the most efficient outcome, but it happens to be bad for America, should we be in favor of the American outcome or the pro-market outcome? And they'll tell you, well, you know, they'll either dispute the point or they'll just say, well, be on favor of the market outcome and it'll ultimately be good for America. I think that right there tells you that they are completely divorced from common sense, not to mention some of the social cultural issues that we see that ask us to completely abandon common sense and pretend, for example, that that guy who won first place in some swimming meet is actually a woman. And when everyone can tell you that it's not. But if you say it, there's a real price to pay, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, being canceled or called out or being called a hater or what have you. So I think that's one of the challenges we, we saw during COVID. We did this one size fits all policy for everybody and we're paying a, a huge price for it now. You did not vote for the Chips and Science Act or the infrastructure bill. These two had some bipartisan support. After all we've talked about, I imagine these are things in theory you do support, infrastructure do. investments, making semiconductors here at home. So how should we have done that if those bills were not the right way? Because they look at that CHIPS bill as an example. I was an early supporter of the concept. Then they write the bill. And then you read the bill, what he basically concludes is we're going to put billions of dollars into the hands of businesses. We're going to have to do that in order to build the CHIPS. But those businesses can keep building chips in China, what they call legacy chips. And, and we're also not going to put in additional scrutiny and security. We already have billions of dollars of intellectual property and secrets stolen by the Chinese every year. Now they're going to give them billions more to steal. Um, and so when I tried to put additional security measures to protect whatever it is we're making and building with this taxpayer money, they, um, they, they opposed it. They didn't want those restrictions. And they also didn't want the restrictions on being able to continue to do business in China. And, and then to top it all off, we now find out that the people administering this bill are going to these companies saying, oh, and by the way, in addition to making chips, you got to have a certain child care policy, a certain family leave policy, certain equity mm -hmm. numbers that you have to meet. They're injecting all of this social cultural lunacy and hysteria into decision making. So. One thing is what the headline reads, and the other thing is what it actually does. And I think voting for bad public policy will actually set us back, no matter what you call it. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, thank you so much for joining. Thank you.
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Steve Hilton. What's on your mind? Every day, fresh madness. That's what it feels like right now in California as the political monopoly in charge of America's largest state hurtles further and faster to the left with utterly disastrous consequences. The most visible sign, of course, is the chaos on our streets as the Golden State becomes as famous for dystopian scenes of public squalor as for our magnificent landscapes. But the homelessness and crime are just the tip of the ultra-progressive iceberg. Upward mobility, the foundation of the California dream, has collapsed as it becomes almost impossible for most people to get on the housing ladder. Driven by insane bureaucracy, extreme environmentalism, and the iron grip of labor unions, building a house costs four or five times as much in California as in neighboring states. Thanks to astronomical housing costs, the state whose leaders love to brag about being the fourth largest economy in the world now has one of the highest poverty rates in America. According to a recent report from United Ways of California, over a third of California residents are unable to meet basic living costs. We have the highest tax rate, but the lowest literacy rate. We are 50th out of 50 for business climate. We lurch from floods to drought and back again, thanks to a catastrophic failure to maintain and improve infrastructure. When I've pointed out all these problems and more, many people in other parts of the country say, get out while you can. Why put up with all this? My answer is, we can't give up on California. It's too important. Not just for the people who live here, but for America too. The fact is, what happens in California doesn't stay in California. Many of the worst excesses of climate extremism, woke absolutism, and anti-enterprise government bloat overreach and ideological zealotry started here before infecting the rest of the country. This destructive dynamic will continue unless we advance a positive alternative. I'm firmly convinced that California can and must be saved. I love California. I've lived here for more than 11 years since we moved from England. I've been a citizen for just over two. Despite all the problems, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And now I've decided to play my part and trying to turn things around. So I'm now going back into the world of policy and ideas as a participant, not just a commentator. Years ago, before moving to America, I worked in 10 Downing Street for Prime Minister David Cameron as a policy and strategy advisor. Last week, I launched a new organization, Golden Together, that will focus on developing positive, practical policy ideas for California. Everyone can see the problems we have. Now we need some fresh, creative thinking about how to solve them. It was once written that California means to America what America means to the world. Let's make it mean something positive again. I'm Steve Hilton, Fox News contributor and founder of Golden Together. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for season three of my limited time podcast, Everything Will Be Okay, based on my best-selling book of the same name. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.